Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you're listening to the podcast today. Welcome to the first episode of the Actual Agendas In The Know podcast series, where we look to speak to industry experts and thought leaders to gauge a unique and insightful perspective of the industry. We're joined by myself, John Nocafor, BWD's very own and client director, Rob Hammond, and Lindley Baker, director at UNAM and best-selling author. Good evening, well, good afternoon to Lindley. How are you guys doing today? Great, thanks. So um, let the listeners know a little bit more about yourself, Lindley, and um, tell them a little bit about your uh, overview of your background. When I was in high school, I loved math, and my dad told me that if I wanted to use math, make a lot of money, and not be discriminated against, be an actuary. And my first question was, why would anyone discriminate against me? But I was kind of um, naive. I, I did read the newspaper, and in it, it had separate wa- job-wanted columns for men and women. And so... I might have been more aware of it, but I wasn't. Um, but I I looked into it. I majored it in, in it in college. Went to the Morton School of Business and um, continued just to love it. And I've enjoyed working in the field. I I got my FSA, and then I decided to focus on being a mother. So, as John mentioned, I took 19 years off of corporate actuarial work and spent most of that time with the children. We can talk about other things I did uh, during those <laughs> years um, later. Yeah. Eventually, well, I came back to corporate actuarial and I've had a lot of leadership positions and yeah. really enjoyed being back in the profession again as well. No, no, really good. And you may talk about a little bit about your early career. When I, when I got into sort of the actual industry, is not necessarily um, an industry that is well marketed in terms in terms of your traditional maybe like more corporate um, banking roles like investment bank banking analysts. How how did you find sort of getting into that sort uh, of actual profession? You know, not many people may have heard of actual um, the actual profession. What was it that was the draw to you? Right. So when I was 13, I took the typical test they give you at school to try to figure out what professions might be good for you. And I don't think actuary was one of the possible outcomes because it didn't show up at all. The number one thing was math professor at college. And I really didn't want that. I was pretty sure it didn't fit me because I don't really like the research and inventing new ways to do things and you know, 17th dimensional equations, but that wasn't what I loved. I loved something practical. So when I found out that you could use really complicated math and apply it to business as an actuary, then that's what really sparked my interest. No, of course. And Rob, and Rob, yeah. Yeah, sorry. And Lindley, how old were you when your dad mentioned being an actuary? I was 15. 15, yeah. And um, why why had he heard of it? He worked for an insurance company and he was an underwriter, um, not an actuary. Maybe if he had found out about it, he might have been an actuary. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're living his dream. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, but I took my first exam at age 17 and I passed. 
And then I was able to get an internship at age 18. And I was very curious about that because I knew I loved studying it, but I was curious, will I like the job? And, and I really liked the job. So I, then I, I could go back to college and be confident in my major. And I was thankful for that. Yeah. And did, and did you, did you get the FSA, uh, before you took that break? So your FSA qualified. Yeah. And how, yeah. how did you find those? How did sorry? you find the exams? Sorry, sorry, Lindley. How did you find the, the early years doing the exams while you were working as well? Well, it, it's quite a challenge. Um, in the 1980s, I graduated from high school and college and got my FSA at age 25, married and had three kids. And so, so when I'm like watching Jeopardy and they have a topic about the 80s, I understand why I know nothing about what happened in the world. Because <laughs> <laughs> it required all my focus to do those other things. And um, to, let's talk to, and to talk a little bit about the um, the exams. Um, I, I speak to a lot of uh, analysts who may be fairly early on in their careers. Is, do you take do you sacrifice that work life balance in terms of you know when you get get through those exams? You you can there's a fairly stable and safe and potentially financially rewarding career after that. How do you, is there much work-life balance or do you tend to have to sacrifice that to pass um, as soon as possible? So I wanted to pass as soon as possible. I have a graphic in my book, if I can find it quickly, maybe not. Um, but it's like there were three big things in my life while I was working on my FSA exams because um, I, when I had about two exams, two or three exams left, I got married. And when I, when I had my first child, I still had two exams left. And I thought, you know, I got to have to pick two out of the three. Yeah. Being a mom, being, or a full-time mom, being, and doing the exams and working. And so I did take a short break, not before the 19 year break, just to finish up those exams and mm -hmm because it was like a pick two. I, I can't do everything all at once. And I know there are people that try to work full-time and do their exams and they have kids and my hat's off to them because that is super hard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to talk a little bit about, about having the, when you had your three kids and you know, coming up to that sort of 19 year break, typically we see a lot of uh, women in, in, in the corporate industry having to pick the professional life or raising the family was that professional life something that you always wanted and knew early on that no even though i might have to raise a family i know that i i can ascend the sort of levels that i want to in my in my career good question i absolutely love my career and i always thought that i would be able to come back even though i didn't have any example of anyone who had done it so I relied on hope. I decided, well, I hope I can come back, but I was making a conscious choice to dedicate myself to my kids at that time. But during those 19 years, I thought I might be able to do something to help it happen. So I volunteered with the Society of Actuaries, Education and Examination Committee throughout that time and even before my break. And I that was a way to keep up with the concepts and what changing 
in the profession. Um, one of the topics I was involved in was regulation and tax for life insurance. And over the last 20 years, there's been a lot of change in that. And so, so that was um, very helpful. And I also, sometimes I work part-time at universities teaching actuarial science, which got me deep into the formulas. I actually was living with my family in China in 1994 when they were looking for their very first actuarial professor in the history of the country because you know China was moving more toward a market economy mm-hmm. people own their own factory and instead of the government if it falls down or burns down now they they need uh, insurance to to cover it so if you need insurance you need actuaries so they had uh, put together a class of 30 brilliant mathematicians to become their country's first actuaries and I got the opportunity to teach that and that was really super fun and as I said they were smart um all but one of them passed the exam so yeah it's a lot higher pass ratio than um than average and they were taking the exam in English even though they were first language yeah Chinese. Were, you, were you were you teaching in English I take it I was because I don't know Chinese. I know four languages, yeah. one of which is not Chinese. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it was good for the students because then that forced them to think in English. And I did have um, an assistant professor from the local faculty who spoke Chinese. So so sometimes they could try to clarify things with him. And he was pretty good at English and better than the students. And so sometimes he would clarify things with me. But at the beginning of the semester, I just started speaking fairies slowly and sped up as we went along and that um, probably helps with english speaking students as well <laughs> to be honest you you um you mentioned there you other languages where 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 did you pick up those other languages and or, or was it a love of language that, that that made you learn those well it's mostly a love of wanting friends mm. so <laughs> i lived in um Japan before I lived in China. And this was for my then husband. He was an engineer and he was being moved around the world to help different uh, factories and areas. And in Japan, I did learn Japanese. But we were only there three years and that's not long enough for me to learn Japanese. So when we moved to China, I kept learning Japanese. China had a lot of Japanese people could have a Japanese tutor and Japanese friends and things. And with Japanese and Chinese writing being so similar, I was pretty sure I would just get everything jumbled up in my head if I tried to learn Chinese. So I skipped that. Um, I And then later we, we moved to France and French was my high school language. And so I was happy to refresh that. And then when I worked for MetLife in the early 2010s, mm. I had a team of actuaries that some of which were in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And they were had to learn English to do the to work. But I decided that was a chance for me to learn um, Spanish with in solidarity with them. And I think it helped them learn English and um, be comfortable asking questions because I'm going to ask them similar things. I said, if I say anything wrong, or weird let me know and um one thing um you know i've picked up you live in so many different 
countries and whilst you know maths is always going to be maths it, did you find there was um cultural differences in terms of how how each country wants to do their sort of actual work when they would when you went over to china and um when you're speaking to the sort of argentinian actuaries um were there sort of any differences you noticed oh i didn't know you could do it like that sort of thing uh, the math was pretty much the same. In Argentina, though, just to get the bachelor's degree level, they had to do a thesis research project to qualify. And and like with the Society of Actuaries, you don't have to be able to write much in order to become fully qualified. You, know, you calculate, you report on it, you explain you know, all the laws and things like that. So, so that was a hurdle um, for especially for people that love numbers instead of people who love words uh, that some of them were still working on after they had been um, hired. But as far as the actuarial calculations, that's pretty much the same. I think a lot of it is driven by like, the major modeling platforms that are pretty international. And they, I think that might have standardized it more lately than perhaps in the past. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, I don't know. What, what, what were you going to say something there? No, no. no what I, I was—it's funny how you say about the, the actuaries like the numbers, and it's uh, the the wordy exams, and and the thought of having to do a thesis would would scare many a many a UK actuary off. Um, but yeah, there is you know the UK the um, many of the exams, uh, the later exams, uh, a lot more wordy than certainly the earlier exams, and there's a communications paper and that kind of thing now as well. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, the maths is the same all all around the world, John. Uh, yeah, no, of it, course. I, I, I think I think I guess Lindley's discovered that you you know these different areas that you can work in uh, different countries. Can, can can we ask you about when you came back? Uh, into industry after those 19 years, Lindley. Uh, John John asked you, you know, was it something you always wanted to do? And you said that you were hoping that you'd be able to do it. How how easy was it to do and, and you, or, 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 or difficult? Yeah, so I have, this is my uh, first book, Don't Be Afraid to Do What You Really Want to Do. Reach All Your Life Dreams. And it has several chapters on the difficulty imagine a dentist or a doctor or you know, any kind of profession coming back after a generation you would think well no they probably don't know what's going on anymore and so there were a lot of people that I applied to that I never heard from and there were uh, but I had kept up as I said by teaching and by working with the Society of Actuaries and so there were some companies that were willing to look at me and I actually really lucked out because MetLife had just acquired Alico and they were looking for actuaries who spoke an Asian language, a European language, and English. And yep. I did. There can't be many of them. You know? oh, yeah, so got it. Most, of them, <laughs> most of them don't have English as their first language. So it yep. might be Swahili or or Chinese. And so it was helpful for my first language to be English. I already actually have that one down. And so they were willing to interview me and they were, they hired me kind of as a um, experiment, like neither of us knew if it was going to work, but they, they were going to give me a chance. 
And they said, well, how long do you think it would take you to ramp back up? And I said, no, maybe four months. And he was, he was comfortable with that. He saw what I had done before my break and he thought I would have great things to bring to the table. And so, but I kept up with the theory and the calculations. I kept up with the new trends, new laws, but there was no way I could keep up with the day-to-day actuarial work. And that, of course, had changed. For example, I had thought about, I wonder what kind of calculator they give actuaries these days. And they gave me all my stuff and I sat down in my cubicle and there was no calculator. And I'm like, okay, I guess maybe we just use Excel. And so like my expectations were, were off and, and then there were some things mostly related to technology that I felt like should be super simple questions stupid questions that I would be embarrassed to ask. And because some of my kids who had been to college recently, they would know. I knew because they had used that software or they would have known how to use computers for that. And so so I'd, I'd, be, I'd have a conversation with myself in my cube. I'd say, right, I, I don't know how to do this. This is a stupid question. I don't want to ask this question. I can't do my job if I don't know the answer to this question. And so... Finally, I decided that I had to ask those questions. I would save up a few and I made a rule so I could live with myself that I could only ask the same stupid question one time. And so that means I had to make sure I understood the answer and I recorded it so I wouldn't have to ask again. And then I got through that. But it was it was shorter than four months before I was really contributing. And in seven months, they promoted me to manager. And that was um, not just what I did before my break. It was also what I gained during my break. Yeah, Because you can learn skills that can help you in business that you can't learn sitting at a desk all day, every day. Like organizing things for the, the schools or a music festival or a church and community. You learn to deal with people. You learn to organize. I mean, I learned to organize just organizing my kids and helping figuring out like what do we pack in our suitcases in August because we're not coming home till June. That I could be an effective manager. So I brought that to the table as well. And that's part of the emphasis of my book is to help people realize and employers that there's value that can't be valued the and that you shouldn't just, you know, just, you know, not not consider a candidate because of what they've chosen to do during their adult life. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's nice that you you mentioned that because there'll be a lot of women that'll be li- listening to this podcast, like un- understanding how to balance that and maybe between becoming a a work returner. When you explain that sort of career break, do you do you think that um, employers frowned upon it? Was it something? Did you ever think you were doubting yourself in terms of I might not be able to get the sort of position I'm I'm looking for, or did you think no? I know I've done this. I've never been able to keep up with the theory. I've still I'm still involved in the actual profession. Um, how, how did you find it? And how did you think you were viewed when you were ret- a, a work returner? Well, it depended on how open-minded the company was. I was actually about two weeks away from applying for a job as manager at the local taco restaurant uh, because 
it was it was several months before I I actually started to get interviews, and I because everyone was wanting recent experience, and I was just screaming in my mind, "How can I get recent experience if no one will hire me?" Yeah. And so so that part was was really frustrating, and even five years after my return, I was applying to other companies because I wanted a new opportunity. And there were some companies even at then after I had had you know, a fabulous uh, resume of things I did with MetLife. Uh, like, we don't understand the gaps in your resume. We don't, we don't want to interview her. And I mean, it was even, there was this one company that they were French speaking and they needed a life products manager and life insurance is my specialty. And I thought, you're not, yeah. you're not seeing my value. But, but through it all, I had confidence in myself. I knew I had something to offer if I could find somebody that was willing to give me a chance. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I think that the word there is, is value. And I think now things are shift, now things are shifting in terms of the career breaks or be, used to be frowned upon. Now is actually, what have you done in that career breaks? Because it's, it's giving you a whole set of skills and a whole set of perspective that naturally had you have just gone through the traditional actual route right through to, to where you are now, you may not have gained that sort of life experiences, which is so valuable um, for companies because it, profitable companies b benefit from people that have a, a range of thoughts, a range of experiences, different perspectives. So it's something that for me, I definitely would be talking to clients that people that might have had career breaks, taking time out to raise families they've got a unique set of skill that you just can't find anywhere else yes and another big thing they have is enthusiasm because yeah. i had all this pent-up enthusiasm for doing the actuarial work because i hadn't been able to apply it and and people that stay in the career that whole time they, they might not have as much enthusiasm yeah yeah um, yeah they're wanting to have a break <laughs> but lily you you said before it'd be, it'd be nice if it, 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 or John said it'd be nice if some women were, were listening to this about you know having some confidence in yourself and it'd be be really nice John as well if, if some employers would listen would be listening yeah. to the messages here about you know look at the the gaps in the resume don't just uh, don't just ignore them actually the life skills that you gain during that period could be really valuable of course um taking such I know that we're talking a lot about the break but it's it's such a rare thing to see but at the time people with that sort of career career break um at the time you've you left and the time you joined in back in um into the profession what are the sort of the big shifts you had seen because i think that you've got such a big perspective because it must have been night and day from when you left to when you returned you're like oh like this has changed this has changed we do things like this now well a lot of the technology has changed um one thing that started was town halls. Um, I had no idea what that meant. I knew in the town where I grew up, I just never went to my town meetings. And so when I was invited to a work town hall, I was like, no, I'll just get my work done. And someone had to explain to me, no, this is a very important meeting for everybody. Um, but my first meeting that I organized at MetLife was uh, with a lot of IT people. And I got in the room and there were about seven people and I was the only woman and I sat there saying what hasn't happened in these 20 years and mm, yeah yeah that's, that's really, 
they they did have like some IT managers that just happened not to be in that particular meeting, and um, they do value women quite well at MetLife. But I haven't seen as much progress yeah. as I had expected in the leadership level of actuaries in in that time. Yeah, and it's it's it's, it's something that that Rob and I. You know, when we speak to clients, they always say, like, how can we engage more women into the profession? How can we not only just take up the profession, but also, like, get them in sort of the senior management um, positions? Um, you're, a di- you're a director, you know, what would you say needs to happen so that companies actually look within um, in terms of finding that sort of um, women in leadership? Because companies I've seen in, in industry so far, maybe hiring across, but not necessarily looking within the sort of talent pools that they have. Right. Well, Unum is another company that really values diversity in gender and, and in many ways. They, Since I uh, joined them last fall, they promoted one of their female actuaries to be the chief risk officer of the company. And I was happy to, to see that, to have that opportunity. Um, but I, I think... A lot of it would probably stem more from building that culture and think and changing people's mindset that women have good skills. And in in researching for my book, I learned that the the worst corporate decisions were the ones that were made by all men yep. or all women. Yeah. So when you have both genders in a boardroom, then or whatever meeting. <laughs> then you you get that diversity of perspectives that tends to get to a better solution. So uh, the companies that are promoting diversity of thought are really the ones getting ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And you just touched upon the book. Um, for the listeners that um, don't, don't know the book, it's called Don't Be Afraid to Do What You Really Want to Do, Reach All Your Dreams in Life. Talk to us about about the motivations behind that and what you seek to to gain writing your own book. Well, thanks. It is available on Amazon, um, both as an ebook and a paperback. And it's I, I wrote it because I had a message and I wanted other people to know you can take a break. I want employers to know that a break can be valuable or at least neutral. I think the mindset, the traditional mindset of breaks are bad came from like the 50s and 60s when usually there was just one breadwinner in the family usually the man and if he didn't have a job that was a problem but nowadays everybody gets educated and the, the, so the mindset needs to change and I also have a formula in the book about the things that you need to prepare about think about before your break and things to help people come back now that because I, I didn't write the book until I was successful back in my career and gotten leadership position because if I hadn't gone that far, then there really wasn't a message. So speaking of words versus numbers, though, I'm a numbers person and my book requires lots of words. And I'm like, I I joined a mentoring program that was helping people write books and they introduced us to different storytelling techniques and editors and printers. And um, it it was a, a early in the pandemic, so we were used Zoom for a lot of that. But uh, it was a really helpful um, 
program so for someone writing their first book so that I could understand like okay you tell a true story like people tell a short story and you have the different sections and then you have the climax and you figure out what the climax and um then you can have an effective story and I mean that's something I totally missed in my actual education so um so I so I'm glad that I did that and I'm writing a new book and now I don't need to learn this time how to write the book I can just do it but I I'm happy that I could write the book and I have a lot of feedback from people saying seeing that they can be successful in more than one area I think the universe or God or however vibes you describe it everybody has life dreams things that interest them like one of mine is math I love math why do I love math I don't know but we have other things people like they like horseback riding or swimming or uh, mountain climbing um, but society tells us basically we can be good really good at one thing and everything else has to be secondary but I think if you live a full adult life you can spend time pursuing great things in all of your life dreams which for me were math motherhood and music and I got a master's degree in music performance when I had six little kids some people think I was crazy and I thought well I really want to do this and I just thought I would squeeze it in but I found that it actually increased my capacity because as I did something that I truly loved it helped it did energized me and I was able to be a better mother in the rest of the time when I was home and it was a really growth experience and I was happy I could do that well it's it's, it's fantastic and you, you every it's so it's so insightful just speaking to an actually that's lived such a full life in terms of that you haven't done just the traditional numbers that you expect but you've been away you've done 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 the music what what was what was the reasoning behind just the i've been reading reading your bio and i was looking into it there's a violin performance there's just it just seems so left the field that you'd expect an actuary to do well well i like to think about my obituary more than like a bucket list <laughs> like a bucket list is like things to check off think fun things to do but an obituary is like who you became and so what do i want people to write about me when i die and so i think the the clincher for getting the music degree is i want to make sure my obituary mentions music because i love music and so if i get a degree in music whoever's writing my obituary should not forget yeah. <laughs> oh it's fantastic sounds like you've got a master's in motherhood music <laughs> and uh and and, and, act, and math um and it also sounds like that that you mentioned words and not numbers, but it it sounds like in your book there may be some formulas in there and maybe a few few uh, charts and so on. So I, I'm I'm sure it will appeal to lots of actors. But this this book I sh I assume um, is not is not just focused on actuarial um, uh, industry. It's it's any anybody any industry. It's all about following your dreams and and knowing that there's you can take a break, you can come back. Exactly. It's all, I have actually a lot of other stories in it, maybe more than six of other people who have followed more than one dream and been extremely successful. Like there's an opera singer named Erin Morley and she sings the highest notes and she, she tours Europe as a soloist and she sings at the Met Opera and she has three little kids. And, but she feels like 
singing helps her be a better mother and being a mother helps her be a better singer. And so she's able to reach both of her dreams that way. And so I wanted to put in other examples because not everyone relates to loving math. Yeah. No, <laughs> of course. Um, let's talk about yourself. So you're currently at UNAM, you're a director. In terms of if, if we had this conversation in five years now, where do you see yourself? Uh, could you could you see yourself living in another country? Would you be doing another one of the pursuing another life dream? Um, well, right now I live in Utah, in the United States, near my mother because she's widowed and older, and I just want to live near her. So, and I want to live here as long as she lives. So, that's also affecting my career. So right now I'm limited to companies that. Have remote positions. Unum is really good with remote because they actually have three headquarters in the United mm-hmm. States. So it's just normal for people not to be in that physical location for whatever project you're working on. So, so Unum is a particularly good fit for me. I'm thankful to be part of them. Um, right now, I have two teams that I'm running. One is in mostly in Poland, so I meet with them at 6:45 a.m. my time every day. And the other one's mostly in the Eastern U.S., so we we meet a little bit later. And so I like using my skills. I'm a process expert in addition to being an actuary. So if I can work on whatever process or models are the worst at that company then and fix them up and then move on to the next one, that's um, that gives me a lot of satisfaction. So uh, that's where I, I'm happiest and I, I don't need to become a chief anything officer um but to d- just make a lot of impact that's what's meaningful to me yeah this uh, it's, it's it's fantastic just um hearing hearing this and i think a lot of people get um so up in oh, I'm, i need to be here by a certain time in my life i need to have this job role i need to be earning this um salary and while yes they'll give a lot of satisfaction and happiness in terms of your career life is more than just your career you want to have a balance of all things you you know your family is your family raising kids raising them when they're children you only get one chance at that your career your the profession is always going to be there so it's just it's fantastic to hear someone that's had a full life and had that sort of traditional career success that we've things were pushed on us in the past so no, it's, it's been fantastic to, to hear that. And th- thank you so much. I don't know what else Rob wants to add to that. Yeah, no, no, I just, I just wanted to, to thank you very much. Then it's been really interested and, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm certainly going to go and have a, a read of your book and, uh, you know, I hope people do uh, read it. And I think the biggest thing for us is to, you know, to tell, to tell employers to, 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 you know, open their doors for, for, for returners uh, and not uh, and to you know to the, the time where you're not working uh, that actually some of the skills that you've learned there um, you know are really valuable it's not just about your work experience um, right I, it was important that I kept up while I was not there because I think if I had just gotten bored after my kids grew up and thought hey maybe I'll be an actuary again I don't think I would have been able to be rehired so I don't think it really matters what you do to keep up, but that you do something. Yeah. 
Uh, absolutely. Um, firstly, um, where can they find your book? And uh, secondly, when when is the you mentioned the next one's coming out? When 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 are we going to see that? When can we get our hands on that? Oh, thank you. So this is on Amazon, and it's available in the UK, like almost all around the world. I think. Uh, don't be afraid to do what you really want to do. Reach all your life dreams. And this is my second book. This is the internationally best-selling book. There are 17 authors, and it is about trust. Oh, it's Wickedly Smart Women. So, of course, every Wickedly Smart Women book needs at least one actuary in it. So, <laughs> and then um, about trusting intuition and transforming worlds. Uh, my upcoming book is called Betrayed, Not Trashed. And it's about uh, keeping your your mind and how, how to approach things, healing. So I was married for 35 years, and for most of the time, he was a great guy. And then, boom, he left in one day, and um, it was a big surprise. And so I got a counselor to help me through it, and I said, like, I'm a, I'm a thinker, and I thought about like lots of things and I've never had one thought I might get divorced so like you need to just tell me for the topics to think about like I have no idea what to do and so my book is going to talk about it uh, the topics that that came up and how I thought through them so that maybe it can help someone else think through the topics and also regarding the betrayal I mean this is just this is dedicated to anyone who's ever been betrayed and it doesn't have to be in a marriage and because I was also betrayed at work um, at one point. So that that's in there too. But it's like when a traitor um, betrays their country, then the country still has that same value. Yeah. Right? People seem to be able to understand that. They, they have new problems because some of their secrets got out or whatever. But... It's the same for people. You have new problems because someone has betrayed you, but you need to remember that your value hasn't changed. That person has no right to judge you. You have great value as a person intrinsically that can't be changed by whatever other people say or do. But a lot of people get depressed when they are betrayed. And so this is try to help them mentally through that as well. So that is coming out next May on the fifth anniversary of my big betrayal. Wow. Impressively, this is impressively powerful stuff. But honestly, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I was going to say this evening, but we're working in international time zones. But honestly, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and it's been fantastic just to hear someone who's lived such a full life and you know, has such life experiences to share with us. Thank you. Um, thank you so much so much Lenny thank you Rob thank you John